With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. For podcasting, the PSAs you hear on Miller and Condon and iHeartMedia Des Moines are presented in part by Nick Mick. We take care of our own. Now, here's Miller and Condon. Two Miller and Condon, thanks for being with Trent and myself as we take you up until noon, bottom of the hour. Talk a lot of Major League Baseball. Matt Snyder from CBSSports.com. Boy, I'm jonesing for baseball, aren't you? Oh, man, just flipping it on. In fact, last night, didn't have a whole lot going on. That family was in bed and just thinking. A late night game oh, on the West Coast, right up your alley. Dodgers, D-backs. Anything. Throw 10 bucks on it. Keep me invested. Keep me entertained. I was uh, talking to... One of my clients yesterday, and... Make it quick, because you're about to talk oh, over the governor. Well, well, we'll get to that a little bit later. All right. Yeah, I'm with you. All right, here is Kim Reynolds, uh, the governor of the state of Iowa. Good morning. As you've heard at the national level from the Coronavirus Task Force, increasing testing and contact tracing is strongly recommended to effectively track virus activity and manage it as states begin to reopen businesses and ease some of their restrictions. Despite a gradual increase in testing supplies over time from the CDC and the national labs, it was clear that unless we did more, we wouldn't have the number of tests that we wanted to confidently move to the next phase of recovery. Three weeks ago, I announced the launch of Test Iowa, a statewide initiative to significantly expand COVID-19 testing for Iowans. Our partnership with Nomi Health created access to more than 500,000 FDA-approved diagnostic tests, the technology to process samples at the state hygienic lab, and the capabilities to enhance data analysis. I'm pleased to announce that the state hygienic lab completed the Test Iowa validation process yesterday. Achieving high ratings of 95% accuracy for determining positives and 99.7% accuracy for determining negatives. And I want to just again commend Dr. Pantella and his team uh, for their effort in getting this done. In the last 23 days since launching, since launching, Iowans have completed over 400,000 assessments uh, on testiowa.com. More than 4,300 have been tested and more than 4,000 Iowans have been notified of their results. Additionally, we've opened eight drive-through test sites when the newest one opens Saturday in Storm Lake. Sites are also available at Des Moines, Sioux City, Waterloo, Cedar Rapids, Denison, Davenport, 
Airport and Atamwa. A lot has happened in a short amount of time. The rapid implementation of Test Iowa was necessary so more Iowans could get tested as soon as possible. Now we're focused on process improvement. As we continue to ramp up, we're working on optimizing the op our operations and improving the overall Test Iowa experience. For those Iowans who have reached out to tell us that we've fallen short of meeting their expectations, we hear you. Now that the lab has completed the validation process, we expect more tests will be processed more quickly and your, your results will be delivered on a timely basis. And in the next few days, we'll also be standing up a dedicated Test Iowa call center where staff experienced with the Test Iowa process can help answer your questions and resolve your issues in a more timely manner. I want to thank the 211 call center and my team at the Capitol for taking those calls the last few weeks and doing your part to assist Iowans in need. I greatly appreciate the teamwork that has gone into supporting this important effort. Test Iowa is a big part of our long-term recovery plan, and we could not have done uh, expand. We could not have expanded our testing capacity to this level this quickly without this opportunity. Test Iowa will help us ensure our ability to sustain increased testing levels over time, so that Iowa's health and economy can recover and grow. You know, the COVID-19 pandemic has been a challenging situation in every way, but nothing has been more difficult than its impact on older Iowans, especially those who live in our long-term care facilities. Knowing that the virus posed the most risk for adults over the age of 65 and those with underlying health conditions, we began proactively planning for how best to protect the residents of long-term care facilities even before our first positive cases of the, of the virus were identified. Then, in the days immediately following, we began putting mitigation efforts in place in our state-run long-term care facilities, and the Department of Inspection and Appeals issued similar guidance for nursing homes, residential care facilities, assisted living facilities, and adult day services. Proactive steps were taken to protect the health of the residents in these facilities, including restricting visitation, implementing staff, staff health screenings, and suspending communal dining and group activities. While these steps are necessary to protect our most vulnerable Iowans, they also have significantly changed life inside Iowa's long-term care facilities. Today, I've asked Maureen Cahill, the administrator at uh, Spurgeon Manor in Dallas Center, to share how she and her staff have adjusted their work to protect the health of their residents while continuing to provide the quality of life that's so important for them. Hi, Maureen. So thanks so much for joining us today. Well, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to discuss how things are going in long-term care. Like you said, my name is Maureen Cahill. I'm the administrator at Spurgeon Manor in Dallas Center and also a member of the Board of Iowa Healthcare Association. For myself and my team, working in long-term care is not a job, it's a calling. My daughter is also an administrator in long-term care. We care about our residents and they're like family. In fact, my, my mom lives at Spurgeon Manor. It's not an easy job and COVID has not made it any easier but we deeply care for our residents. We provide care for their physical, spiritual, and emotional well-being, especially now that family members are restricted from in-person visits for their protection and per CMS regulations. This morning, while making my round, 
in the facility, I asked several residents if there was anything they wanted me to share with the governor, and every one of them said to let you know they're doing just fine, and of course, they miss normal visits from family. The Spurgeon Manor staff are doing a good job and taking good care of them. Long-term care facilities are trained in infection control and standard precautions, but due to COVID, we are taking additional preventative measures like entrance screening and more frequent cleaning and PPE usage. We screen every one of our staff for symptoms and check temps at the beginning and end of their shift. Anyone with symptoms are not allowed in. Cleaning is something that we've always done and now it's even more critical and all staff members are wearing masks while at work. We also have an emergency, um, an emergency response plan ready. Plan A is to keep the virus out of our facility by using all the precautions we so, and so far we've been successful. Plan B is to contain the virus. If we do an infection, if we do have an infection, we have a dedicated isolation area for treating any symptomatic or COVID positive residents. And we have prepared by providing extra training with our nursing staff and our non-nursing staff to help combat the virus. Our dietary administration and environmental services staff have taken the temporary nurse aid course offered through the American Healthcare Association. Our families are worried about our residents getting the virus and also concerned about their emotional state, very similar to what you're concerned about for the residents of our state. So I email an update to our family members almost daily to let them know the status of Spurgeon Manor. Our activities directors meet with the residents and provide them with a letter daily suggesting activities they can do, and it includes exercises, jokes, devotions, and an update on the status of Spurgeon Manor. We have implemented a number of alternative and safe ways for families and residents to communicate while adhering to regulations that prohibit in-person visits and help protect residents from exposure. Window visits, electronic visits like FaceTime, Zoom, and Skype, phone calls, and support of our community with cards and the parade. Parade is like Christmas, Easter, and the 4th of July all rolled into one. Every Thursday at 2.30, we look forward to family and friends driving by, waving and honking with their decorations and signs. We're so happy to see everyone that sometimes we cry. And then we're sad it's over and we wait again for next week for the parade to start again. Our activities and direct care staff are also providing ways to, for residents to interact safely while following social distancing. In conclusion, I want to thank Virgin Manor staff for all they're doing in this extremely difficult time and their concern and commitment to the residents. I know it's not been easy for them to care for their work family along with their personal family, and knowing this is a marathon and not a sprint makes it even harder. Yeah. Governor, we appreciate and will continue to need your support. Thank you. Oh, thank you, Maureen. And I know that this has been a really challenging time for you and your staff. And I want to just thank you for everything that you're doing to continue to provide uh, compassionate care to your residents and to reassure their families, whether it's through your daily emails or the drive-bys uh, that you're providing for, for your residents. And please know if there's anything else that we can do to support you, don't hesitate um, to contact us. Keep up the good work and please let your staff uh, know how much we appreciate all that they're doing in this really difficult time. So thank you, and thanks for being a part of the press conference today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. 
So despite um, the aggressive mitigation measures that we've taken in our long-term care facilities across the state, we have seen, unfortunately, the virus um, has been introduced into some facilities, resulting in really some heartbreaking consequences. Currently, outbreaks have been confirmed in 35 of Iowa's 444 long-term care facilities, totaling about 7.8%. And um, sadly, about 57% of all Iowans who have lost their life to COVID-19 are residents of long-term care facilities. So throughout this time, the Department of Public Health and members of my team have been partnering with facilities across the state in just a whole host of ways uh, to provide access to testing for both residents and staff. Um, testing is provided to any long-term care facility that requests it. They can be sent directly to the facility um, and administered by their own nurses for staff and residents. Uh, we can also coordinate through local public health departments, so they um, can also do that, or we have conducted countywide long-term care strike teams to provide testing as well. Testing of the long-term care facility staff can also be facilita facilitated through Test Iowa sites and that are uh, in the area. Since May 1st, more than 9,000 tests have been sent to 94 facilities to test staff and residents. Strike teams have been deployed to five counties to test more than 1,300 long-term care employees across 40 facilities. And long-term care uh, facilities within a county where a Test Iowa site is located have been offered um, and have been offered the opportunity to be tested at the site for a total of 286 more facilities and more than 16,000 staff. So in total, that's more than 26,000 tests for uh, 420 long-term care facilities. That's 95% of our long-term ca um, care facilities in Iowa have really been proactive and taken advantage of the testing that we've been able to provide so that they can uh, really understand if the virus is active in their facilities, if it's active within their uh, staff or residents. By increasing testing among the long-term care staff and residents, we have an opportunity again to identify positive cases early with the goal of containing the virus quickly and preventing it from spreading. Again, the Department of Public Health has done an outstanding job of working proactively with our long-term care facilities throughout this time from helping them understand the risk associated with the virus, how to mitigate them, uh, and to providing guidance and staff protocols. But when any facility, facility identifies a positive case in one or more residents, the Department of Public Health and local public health officials partner closely with the facility. So I have asked Sarah uh, from the Department of Public Health to kind of provide an overview of what that process looks like today. Sarah? Thank you, Governor, and, and good morning. I do appreciate the opportunity to talk this to, this morning about outbreaks in long-term care facilities and what the department, local public health, and most importantly, staff in these facilities are doing to prevent outbreaks from occurring in these settings and when they do occur, how to contain them and prevent additional residents from getting ill. From the beginning of this response, long-term care facilities have been a priority for us because we saw devastating consequences in other states once the virus was detected in similar congregate living situations. 
We know that the virus spreads quickly and efficiently in settings where people live and work closely together. And we also know that people over 65 and those with underlying health conditions are more susceptible to severe illness if they do become infected with the virus. As Governor Reynolds said, we have confirmed outbreaks in 35 of our long-term care facilities as of today, and tragically, 180 or 57 percent of the 318 COVID-19 deaths in Iowa have been uh, among residents of long-term care facilities. Before Iowa had its first confirmed case of COVID-19, our department staff reached out to all 444 long-term care facilities in our state to discuss infection prevention best practices with them. These practices include things like proper use of personal protective equipment and what to do if a case is identified, like isolating ill residents from others. Additional steps were also taken, like those that the governor mentioned, including prohibiting visitors to, pre to prevent the introduction of the virus, requiring PPE use for every patient interaction within the facility, and yet, unfortunately, we have still seen circumstances where even the best efforts to prevent the virus from entering the facility have not been enough. Once a case is identified in either a staff member or a resident of a long-term care facility, our department staff works with the facility to review an extensive checklist of things the facility should do to prevent further spread of the virus. These measures include immediately sending any employee that becomes ill home or to seek health care, isolating all symptomatic residents in single rooms, cohorting staff so that dedicated staff are working with ill residents and not with healthy residents, recommending that employees use personal protective equipment at all times, even when not providing patient care, and helping facilities obtain enough personal protective equipment to do this, requiring screening of employees for fever and cough or breathing problems at the start and end of every shift, and screening every patient for fever and cough every day. As Governor Reynolds mentioned, we've also intentionally expanded testing opportunities. In addition to reviewing the checklist of infection prevention measures intended to stop further spread, we offer every facility with identified cases testing supplies so all residents and staff can be tested. We have set up testing locations for facility staff in a number of counties as well. Additional opportunities are still in the process of being scheduled. Facilities can also request test kits directly from the State Hygienic Lab by submitting a request through an online form on the SHL webpage. We often get questions about why we report outbreaks at long-term care facilities, but not other types of facilities, such as assisted living and senior care. While the department offers technical assistance and support to any facility that reaches out to us, Long-term care facilities are an area we focus on related to outbreaks because these facilities constitute congregate living settings with a number of residents living in the same building and sometimes sharing rooms. It's much more challenging to isolate ill residents in these settings than in more independent living situations such as assisted living and senior care. The impact of the disease is also, is also often much more severe for individuals who are, who are in need of the more intensive level of care that's provided in a long-term care setting, where staff must also be in much closer contact and in more regular contact with residents. 
Along with the tragic deaths that we've seen, we've also seen the amazing staff in these facilities work to contain the virus to ensure that additional residents do not become ill. Statewide, we have had 244 long-term care facility residents who were ill and they've recovered. For example, at Heritage Specialty Care in Lynn County, 45 residents who were ill have recovered. At On With Life in Polk County, 12 residents who had been ill have recovered. And at Premier Estates of Toledo and Tama County, 41 of their ill residents have also recovered. We will continue to work with our partners at the Department of Inspections and Appeals, the Iowa Health Care Association, Leading Age Iowa, and local public health agencies to support all long-term care facilities across the state, including their staff and their residents. We know this is an incredibly difficult and frightening time with residents physically isolated from their families and loved ones due to restricted visitation policies. Our hearts are with you and we look forward to the day when family and friends can be together again. Thank you, Governor. Thank you, Sarah. And I know, uh, I know how much many of these facilities have appreciated the expertise of the Department of Public Health, the epidemiologist, and everyone involved. So I just commend all of you for your grace uh, with which you do it. I want to reassure Iowans who have family members in long-term care facilities that every step is being taken to protect your loved ones. From the Department of Public Health to the lo uh, local public health officials to administrators like Maureen and the staff at each facility. We will continue to work with them and pri prioritize our long-term care residents and the employees who work in these facilities um, and who are on the front line each and every day making sure that your loved ones are being taken care of. As we focus on those who uh, COVID-19 most significantly impact, Iowans are doing their part as well by practicing social distancing, careful hygiene, and staying home when sick. Our actions really do make a difference. And so with that, we will open it up for questions. Yeah, Governor Owens, you mentioned the validation process yep. will mean increased testing numbers. How many tests do you expect I will be able to conduct as a result of the validation? Well, I think what we're saying is that we have the capacity to do at least 3,000 with the test Iowa, and then the state hygienic lab is also uh, has continued to improve their process, and I believe that Dr. Pentella thinks that they can do at least 2,000 uh, a day through the state hygienic lab, and so that would be a total of 5,000 tests that we would have the ability of processing on a daily basis. As we're setting up these test Iowa sites and we're doing the long-term care testing and some of the manufacturing and processing plant facilities, we also are making runs throughout the day so that we can get the samples to uh, the state hygienic lab in a timely manner. Again, with every effort being made to process these in a timely manner and get Iowans uh, the results um, so that they know how to move forward. Channel 5, go ahead. Hi, Governor. Um, well, the person has been in his press briefings that anyone who wants a coronavirus test can get a test. Um, do you believe that's true in Iowa? So what did she say? So there's a lot of different ways that you can go about that. You can go to the testiowa.com site and you can fill out the assessment. And if you qualify, which we're opening the parameters now that we have the validation um, done, it allows us to even continue to open up those that we'll be testing. So that's one opportunity. You can also um, call your doctor or clinician, talk about the symptoms that you may have, and then they can make the recommendation or do the 
the test if they have the capacity to do that. Um, and as we continue to build out and we get to a place where we're really we're testing healthcare workers, essential workers, frontline workers, first responders, uh, there will become a time, I believe, that we'll be able to continue to open it up. And if Iowans want to get a test, uh, they'll be able to do that. So that's kind of the the approach that we're taking. We're probably not quite there yet, but as I said, we're continuing to expand the parameters that qualify for testing. And then the state hygienic lab are keeping theirs a little bit more narrow because we want to make sure if we would happen to see a spike that we would have adequate um, test supplies there too. I think that's, is that accurate, Sarah? Okay. Next question, Beth, KCRG. Good morning, Governor. I have two questions about long-term care facilities. Dr. Burke strongly recommended to governors that all staff and residents at long-term care facilities be tested immediately. New York said it would be doing that every two weeks to catch those asymptomatic carriers. Will Iowa be taking that step? Secondly, Florida has started transferring nursing home residents who are COVID positive into hospitals in an attempt to stop the spread. Is that a strategy Iowa's considering? So right now we have tested 95% of all of our long-term care facilities. Um, so we've really been proactive in doing that. Um, so, you know, we'll continue. I don't know about the strategy. I think right now they've got units that they're, um, yeah. do you want to try to take that one? So, so right now, related to long-term care facility testing for staff, the offer has been made to facilities um, to provide staffing, either resources directly to the facilities, like I said, when a case has been identified, or through a variety of other options that the governor outlined, including um, facilitating testing through Test Iowa sites. So to date, we haven't mandated that long-term care facility staff um, be tested, but it is strongly recommended and we're doing everything we can to make those opportunities available so that facilities can take advantage of that those testing opportunities. I'm sorry, but the numbers I think indicate that they want to be proactive and they want to do that. They want to make sure, you know, that they're protecting their staff and they want to make sure, especially that they're protecting the residents. And so, you know, we have a really high percentage that have already reached out and done, have done that. And we're continuing to reach out to the um, additional, maybe long-term care facilities that haven't. Um, but I know that's in the process as well. So they've done a really good job of being proactive and, and really taking advantage of the testing that we have available in the state. Monica, Channel 13. Hi, Governor. Thank you. Um, so state lawmakers have determined that tomorrow when a lot of the state is opening back up, it's not safe enough for them to return to their legislative business. Do you think they're being overly cautious with choosing to return later? Well, you know, everybody is going to make their own decisions. I believe they are planning on returning back to the Capitol on June 3rd. I think they're opening the Capitol up next Monday, so you'll see some activity at the state Capitol. But again, you know, everybody has to feel comfortable in how they move forward with this. Even though we have uh, eased the mitigation um, um, requirements on some of our business restaurants, uh, salons, you st churches, you still have uh, individual businesses. Some are ready to open up and they're moving forward. Others are continuing to make sure that they can do it in a safe and responsible manner. So I think you're going to see, you know, see it across the board. You're going to see some that are ready to move forward. You're going to see some that are going to continue to take a little bit more time before they decide to open up their business. And then Iowans are going to, you know, ha take the responsibility to decide if they are ready to go out 
out and participate at the businesses or go to a restaurant or, you know, what, however they're going to gauge um, their comfort level as well. But, you know, it's not going to go away. It's going to, it's here until we find a vaccine. And so we have to learn to live with it until a vaccine is um, uh, finalized or approved through the FDA. And we can do it. And we can do it in a responsible manner. Iowans are doing that. They've demonstrated that. And I believe that, you know, with everyone's efforts that together we're going to continue to move forward through addressing COVID-19 in the state of Iowa. Ryan, Associated Press. Yes, thank you. Um, you. You mentioned that 4,300 Iowans have been tested through Test Iowa since, I think, April 25th. The goal of that $26 million contract with the Utah companies was 3,000 tests per day. Have you been satisfied with their performance to date? Well, I have. It's been three weeks. It has been three weeks since we literally announced that we had partnered with not only um, Nomi Health, but with the State Hygienic Lab. This has been a great partnership. It really has allowed us to um, uh, um, get uh, over 500,000 tests to be able to process that, to really modernize the system. Um, we've gone from, uh, to really automate it, from handwritten to a QR code that allows us to populate the information. And we are continuing to enhance the process daily. The data that we're receiving and that we're able to utilize in making the decisions has is, is and has been incredibly helpful and certainly will be helpful as we um, really address COVID-19 for the long term. So, you know, we've in, in three weeks, as I've said, we've stood up eight um, test Iowa sites. We've done eight strike teams. We've actually gone in and been able to work with manufacturing and processing facilities. And that's in conjunction with the state hygienic lab. So, um, uh, you know, I'm proud of the efforts. We've increased our testing by over 800 uh, percent since we since in, in two months. And so, you know, we're moving in the right direction. It takes some time to ramp up now that we we have it validated. I think you're really going to continue to see us uh, be able to uh, build out what we have the capacity to do with bringing them on board. And that will do it for the uh, governor's press conference on a Thursday. KXNO and iHeartRadio want to help you with your bills. Uh, text the keyword HOPE to 200-200 right now. It's your chance to win $1,000. That's HOPE to 200-200. You'll get a confirmation text and info. Standard data and message rates apply in this nationwide contest. Matt Snyder from CBSSports.com. Trent, Matt and I will throw the baseball around the diamond. I'm ready for that. We're trending that way, right? I think you are correct, sir. Matt Snyder next. Miller and Condon till just before noon. It's Des Moines Sports Station. 1460 KXNO and 101.org. Ken Miller, Trent Condon, Miller and Condon on 1460 KXNO. And now on 106.3 FM. All right, Miller and Condon, Des Moines Sports Station, 1460 KXNO, 106.3 FM. Baseball in 30 seconds. Matt Snyder is going to join us. Just this quick nugget on Twitter. We talk all, all the time about rookie quarterback contracts and how what a great benefit it is to an NFL team that has a starter early in his rookie contracts. So the Cowboys in 2017, uh, out of their cap, they spent $1.8 million on the quarterback. 18, $1.8 million on the quarterback. 19, 2.9. This year, 
$5.7 million. <laughs> Goodbye salary cap. That's going to eat up a lot oh, of that God. salary. Well, salary cap has been a conversation in Major League Baseball. I like what, you tra- what you're doing I'm, here. I'm learning from the old man over there. <laughs> Matt Snyder joins us from CBSSports.com. Matt, as we feel like we are trending towards getting sports back, there'll be an exhibition golf match this weekend. NASCAR will be back on the track. We await Major League Baseball and well, this week it's been a whole lot of hand-wringing and the Players Association saying we're not going to have a salary cap. Welcome in. How are you today? I'm okay. Uh, you know, just missing sports, but other than that, fine. Yeah, with you, Matt. Uh, look, it's it's probably going to look bad for the players and the owners before they, you know, they get things together and, and come up with. Some, I just can't see them uh, being given the green light and not coming up to some resolution on that. I have no problem uh, with uh, what's the name Snell from Tampa Bay, the left-handed pitcher. Uh, you know, he wants to be paid his entire contract. He's 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 scared. I'm scared. Uh, I, I understand uh, what some people are going through. Everybody's different that way. But do you think that you know we will get? Some some, you know, some uh, a bad look, if you will, before we do get to a resolution. Uh, we're already there, man. I mean, it, the, just the way Snow was phrasing everything and the way he was saying it is just terrible optics. I agree with him, but gosh, there's 30 million people unemployed or uh-huh. whatever it is, and you know, this is a, a player talking about millions, millions of dollars to play a game, and that just does not sit well with fans and. I get worried about the long-term health of the game the more that this plays out in the public eye because I 100% am on the player's side, 100%. I think the owners are totally trying to screw the players and are in the process of probably successfully screwing the players because eventually the players, I think, are going to have to cave because for whatever reason, the fans always seem to side with ownership collectively, not every single fan, but as a group, more often than not, you see these greedy players. Yeah, you never hear these greedy owners from the casual fan. And what the way Snell phrased everything, again, that just doesn't sit well. And you never see a specific owner saying anything like that in public. They're way more business savvy than that. Um, so that's why I think the players are going to end up getting screwed here. And But, again, if I saw the other day some, I think it was John Heyman that, that tweeted a report that, the owners think they would lose less money if there was no season than if they give mm-hmm. prorated salaries for the season. Um, that would crush the game long-term, though. So I, I, we can't think just in terms of this season. That would crush the game long-term. It's crazy that that thought even goes through the minds. We are talking about billionaires. It's, <laughs> these are people, and, and yeah, they can say, all right, we'll shut down the season. But the viability, the long-term sustainability of the sport and a sport that made over $10 billion last year, $10 billion with Everybody's a Everybody's getting rich. They're all getting rich, yet they can't come to a conclusion. How long do you think this drags out? Um, I actually think it's going to stick with the, the timeline. Um, you know, the, the June 1st to June 4th, or July 1st to July 4th uh, opening day, with two to three weeks of spring train, second spring training in front of that. Um, keep in mind, they're talking all day, every day at this point. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, that's still a lot of time before then. They could agree the day before and then get a bunch of guys out there. So uh, what we've been hearing is a lot of teams have been telling their employees to prepare to leave for a spring uh, either late this month or the first week of June. And uh, we've still got, a, what, a couple weeks before that happens. So I, I think that... It, 
within this time period, there's going to be contentiousness. There's going to be fights. Uh, both sides are going to be angry with the other side. But eventually they're going to realize that for the betterment of the, the health of the game long term, that this has to get done. Uh, Matt, I'm, I'm curious to know if you've heard an answer to this. I have not. Um, will Will Major League Baseball make it a kind of a one-size-fits-all, meaning you know there might be some states that have Major League teams uh, that are will allow fans into their ballpark. Maybe not a, you know in, in every seat, but they will allow some fans. Seemingly in California, that's a non-starter. Will baseball yeah. be? You know, everybody's got to do it this way. We won't be able. You won't be able to go to this ballpark, and there'll be fans. But when you get back to your own ballpark, you don't get any semblance of a home field advantage. Have you heard? Um, I have not, but I, I think we can read the writing on the wall here. They're already fighting about money. Uh, I think it's going to have to be even. If uh, the, the Padres can't have fans, then why should the Cubs be allowed to have fans there? Um, it, because of the money. So my guess is if if one team can't, then nobody can. I think it makes the most sense, quite yeah, honestly, yeah, from a competitive balance, for sure. Yeah, and just different states, New York, you know, the outbreak that they've had. Illinois. Arizona's open. Arizona's open. Right. And you have California right next to it. It's just, it's completely different, the playing field. 80-game schedule, 80-ish has been the conversation. Yeah. What do you think about the idea, NL Central, AL Central, matter to us here, certainly in our market, you're not going to play anybody from the East this year. You're not playing anybody from the West do you like that compromise and staying close to home? Everybody in your division and then going across to the other league to play your other local teams, if you will. Yeah, I'm okay with it. I, I mean, I think that we've probably had enough time to come to the realization that whatever the season looks like this year, it's going to look like no other season that has ever happened. So let's get crazy. Um, so, yeah, I whatever. As long as we get a season, right. I'm okay <laughs> with it being the craziest, weirdest, season we've ever seen so yeah i'm perfectly fine with it when does uh when will this uh i guess the calendar be extended to have you seen you know i know they're going to increase the playoffs and we don't know the exact number of games yet so maybe this is premature but might we see baseball uh close to thanksgiving as far as the playoffs i don't think it's going to go quite that far maybe one or two weeks into november but i, I think that the the goalposts have been moved they, you know, for a while they were talking about we're still going to have to play. We're still going to play a really long season, 144 games, push the playoffs back, maybe even to December. Now all of a sudden we're down to 80 games from uh, the first week of July, um, and that's not that much further than what it would be in a normal season. Um, from if you go from the first of July, usually that's like 75 games. So I, I think that they're trying to get it uh, more quick and dirty rather than uh, the really long season we're used to seeing. And, and honestly, I think it's because of, the, of all the warnings of like a second surge of mm-hmm. the coronavirus in, in the fall. So they're, I think they're worried about um, maybe having to get shut down in the middle of the season. So now they're saying, uh, yeah, we're going to have to go short and try to get this over with. Talking with Matt Snyder, CBSSports.com. He's the MLB writer there here on Miller & Condon. You know, Matt, uh, another part of the proposal, Ken talked about the playoffs, the expanded roster, and just want to get at least your understanding of how that's going to work and the trickle-down effects as it relates to minor league baseball. Yeah, I'm not sure about the minors this year at all. Yeah. I think it's going to be it's mm-hmm. tough. Um, what we're hearing, I think it's going to be up to like 32-man roster, and most of the 
uh, expansion of the roster there is going to be the bullpen because the pitchers aren't going to have enough time to get stretched out. You know, the spring training right. for the pitchers is a process of getting to the point that they can go five, six, seven innings, uh, only two to three innings of ramping things back up. The starting pitchers aren't going to be ready at the start of the year to go more than like three innings. So they're going to have to have an increased bullpen presence. So I think that's what the extra roster spot's going to be used for. But they're also going to have what the so-called like a taxi squad. Um, probably 15, 20 guys that are practicing with the team every day, taking batting practice with the team every day, but are not on the roster. But in case somebody gets injured, then now they got to come up. Um, it, and they're not going to be getting their minor league reps. So it's going to be um, interesting, to say the least. Uh, yeah, but I, at the lower levels of the minors, I think we're done for the year. Yeah, I, I'm with you. And if the um, you know if if the taxi squad, if you want to call it that, is comprised of guys that you know normally in the summer we'd in the Cubs' sake see down here uh, in Des Moines, does that mean the Double A guys would be elevated to the Triple A level? Uh, so many questions remain to be seen. Matt, I want to talk to you about your article you wrote earlier in the week. I love when I come across stuff that I didn't realize. I'm talking about the Armando Galarraga piece, who was. You know, robbed, quite frankly, of the perfect game. I did not know that the next night Galarraga took the lineup card out. Of course, Jim Joyce was at first base, meaning the next night he's got the dish. Uh, he was the home plate yeah. umpire. And Galarraga took the, uh, took the lineup, uh, out to, um, out to the umpires gathering there and gave it to Jim Joyce. And Jim Joyce, uh, broke down, quite honestly. And he admits he blew the call. I didn't know that with Galarraga. What, what a touch of class that was. It was, um, and I don't know, it, it, did you go back and try to find the, the YouTube of it? I did not. Yeah, it's. I mean, you can see Joyce is really, really, really choked up. Um, his, his eyes are really red. He's got tears, and the, he patted him on the back, but it was kind of like an intense pat on the back, like he was apologizing with the pat on the back. It's a, It was a good moment. Uh, Jim Joyce is a good guy. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he It just crushed him that he blew that call. Um, to the point that I actually, to the 2013 World Series, Red Sox, Cardinals, there were a few really, really close calls that Jim Joyce had. Uh, several of them actually looked like he missed them in real time, but when you slowed him down, he actually got them right. So I was moved to actually write an article about how he was having like his redemption series. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fascinating story to me because – it was one of the worst calls you've ever seen, yeah. but he was such a, a true, accountable human being about it. Admitted he was wrong right after he saw it, and he said, I cost that kid a perfect game. It crushed him. Yeah, it clearly did, and now there's a movement afoot um, the petitioning Major League Baseball 10 years later to to right the wrong. Joyce is good with it. I mean, he got the next batter out. He, he only faced, what, one over the minimum and did so with less than 100 pitches. What's the likelihood that the Major League Baseball goes back into the record books and writes the wrong this way. I mean, could could they? And what precedent would that set? I don't think it's. A, I don't think there's very good likelihood of them doing it at all. Um, and they're going to use this slippery slippery slope theory. But where I push back on that is normally I would say you can't do it. It's in the past. It's done. It's set in stone. But there's no slippery slope here because find me another example of the 27th out of a perfect game being a ridiculously blown call where everybody admits it, it's on video to see. Find me another example of that ever happening in history. And with replay going forward, it's Mm, never going to happen again. This is a unique situation. 
and, and I've seen people on Twitter bringing up, like, the Dinkinger call. Okay, well, that was game six. Then there was a game seven after that. The Cardinals still could have gotten out of the inning in game six and won the game that game anyway. You can't find another example of this where it was the final out of a perfect game in the regular season in a game that didn't even end up mattering. You can't find another example of this. There's no harm in changing it. Matt, uh, you also wrote an article last week, and the one thing that is keeping our sports life afloat, and that is the last dance, the day that Michael Jordan played yeah. in Wrigley Field. Take us through that. And uh, I know you're a Cubs fan. Do you remember the game? Oh, yeah. I was watching it. Um, it it's funny. I, I actually said this on another radio show. Uh, as a Cubs and Pacers fan, <laughs> I was unbelievably annoyed about how everybody was cheering for him. For <laughs> But looking back, of course all of Chicago is going to be cheering that. It was an exhibition game. Cubs and White Sox fans are all pretty much Bulls fans. It was really cool. I mean, in watching it back now as an adult, I can admit that that was a really cool moment. Um, but also watching the highlight, you know, it, it, maybe my Cubs and Pacers fan in me comes out here. It was a ground ball down the line. <laughs> uh, how much... It wasn't like he hit a double in the gap right. off the wall. No, I got you. Last thing for you, Matt. Uh, I'm I'm assuming that the schedule maker's been working overtime, right? Oh. I mean, can you imagine oh, all, for all of these sports, quite honestly, uh, the NBA, what they're going to try and do, NHL, but particularly Major League Baseball because they haven't started with Game 1. When would uh, – how uh, quickly after we get the, the, the agreement between the players uh, and the owners, will we get a schedule, do you think? Man, um, I, I have no idea. Do they come uh, hand in I hand? Assume, no, I don't think so. I, I think that you don't want to waste work, do you? Because, I mean, yeah. if you want to build like an 100-game schedule, but then they agree to 80, then you have to redo it. Um, so maybe a, a, a week or so after an agreement. I don't know. I mean, I think it would be easier in the other sports, wouldn't it? Because, like, NHL and NBA, they probably just go straight to the playoffs. I hope so. would have the playoff game. Right. Uh, but in baseball, you have to build the regular season schedule with something you've never done before. So, yeah, I mean, I I think they'll be able to do it pretty quick. I mean, there are computer programs that build schedules for you in fantasy leagues. So, I I mean, I think they could probably plug something in, but um, maybe a week or so, I bet. Good stuff, Matt Snyder. Appreciate you coming on. Matt Snyder, CBSSports.com, their MLB writer. Thank you, sir. Sure thing. Have a good one. You do the same. Matt Snyder talking baseball here on Miller and Con as we wrap up a Thursday show. So July 4th weekend seems like the consensus. That's the target date at yeah. this point, which would be... Uh, the 3rd is a... Friday. Is Friday. Yep, 3rd is Friday. Hey, I think they would probably... Do you wait for the 4th? Do you, when will everybody be off? We're off Monday, right? The 6th? Saturday's the 4th. What are you off? Is it is the holiday Friday or Monday? I said, I don't know. I don't know, yeah, the way that it would work. I, I believe I'm going to have to take the third off because my cousin's getting married, and Ella is the flower girl. So <laughs> regardless, that would be off for V. Uh, now I'm hoping it's Monday. Get a four-day weekend. Four-day weekend. I'm trying. Though with sports back, I don't know if I want to be off. It's the third. It is the third. Yeah, okay. So that's the, the way that'll play out, and we'll be good to go. It's. Uh, I think you start on the third. I mean, the fourth, obviously, you know, the What's Independence that Monday? Day. What do you mean? June 30th, 29th? Oh, the Monday beforehand? Yeah. Uh, June 29th. Because listen to Matt there, what he's been hearing from teams is get ready to go to back to work late May, early June. If that's the case, boy, that feels like plenty of ramp-up time. 
Well, they just ramped up in February, late February, early, well, well till the middle of March. Mm-hmm. I don't I, know, Trent. It's not like there are guys that are sitting on the couch doing nothing, but mm-hmm. at this point, if we were talking about the 70s and 80s Major League Baseball, I think well, the conversation would be a lot different. Right. Well, they're, they're, they're at their full-time jobs. Right, right. They're selling insurance. Right. In the off season, these guys crazy to think that athletes used to do that not that, too many years ago. Oh, what was oh, the it's book? been a while now. Yeah, it has been. Right. But remember uh, reading years ago a Bronco Nagurski book. Okay, in what the did off-season? he do in the off? Cutwood. Yeah, a lot of school teachers. Yeah, yeah, a lot of substitute teachers. Just the, how different the world was. But in today's environment, these guys—they've been working out. They've been going through it. They're they're going to be able to ramp up quickly. We had a caller actually that uh, called in when we were talking to Matt, and he asked. Pitchers, the first three, four weeks, how many of them are qual- going to qualify for wins if they yeah. aren't getting through the five innings? Mm-hmm. And then you get into the guys that are arbitration eligible next year. Oh, well, you know my. what? You only had three wins. <laughs> and over and over 162, that'd only be six. Yeah, but Boris and company will have a plan for uh, come back will for be, that. But remember who the most of the time the lawyers or the judges in these arbitration cases. For the arbitration, that's a good point. They yep. don't know who. Yeah. They don't know baseball. Which is still baffling to me that these are the people deciding that I guess these are the people that are in those roles. And then you have to sell the case. And the case, I think, for the teams is going to be a lot easier. That guy wasn't very good. Yeah. Look at his numbers. They weren't very good this year. You know, year. Matt made a good point in our conversation. It, we always blame the players, right? Yes, we do. Greedy yeah. players. Yeah. Greedy SOBs. I saw Playing s- a kid's game. I do it for blah, blah, blah. But the owners, man. <laughs> I saw yesterday as the Marlins are going to be laying off and furloughing a big portion of their staff. Uh, one of the principal owners of the Marlins has a yacht worth more than the opening day payroll is supposed to be for the Marlins this year. Is that a fact? A yacht worth more wow. than their whole payroll. How the I was going to say the other half, but it's not the other half. No. How the well, you get it. I mean, yes. Look at Jerry Jones' boat, right? <laughs> yeah. Right. Look at my the team I root for, the Jets. The guy that owns the Jets, one of the I think he's the top ten richest men in North America. Oh, really? He's the richest Canadian. He laid him off. Laid he off did. support staff. What an off. Well, they finally came around, mm-hmm. uh, but kicking and screaming. You know, such unbelievable. a bad look. It really is a bad look. Billionaires, billionaires, help us out. All right, tomorrow we'll be back at uh, ten. But prior to that, three more local programming uh, coming your way: Murph and Andy at two, the Fanatics at four, and of course the Morning Rush tomorrow morning at six. We're Miller and Con, and thanks for being with us. Monday through Friday, 10 to noon, on Des Moines Sports Station, 1460 KXNO and 106.3 FM.